But it is interesting, the first song I should write has got a little contrapuntal thing going. Absolutely. You know, that going down and Two that going parts on. going on at the same yeah. time right out of the box. Yeah. Unusual for a young kid. Yeah, you know, and it, it's a funny thing. As you get older, you think, well, how did I know that? Yes. And I, I haven't got an answer. Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chin. I'm John Stone. And we're back. No, that was last week. Um, <laughs> if you only picked up one of the episodes from last week, we did actually release Kit's visit with us on parts three and four and the Beck promo video as an A and a B side. So you need both of them. Yeah, it was a fun talk. You can find them in the usual places. If you have us in your feed, as you should... You should ha- you should have received both of them, so take a look at it. Indeed. So, new new week, L- last episodes of McCartney three two one, and we have received our preview copies of All Things Must Pass, so we will actually be able to begin our review of that box next week. <laughs> All I can say is, wow, yeah, it's been a, a great time listening to it. All right, so we start with episode five, the title of which is "Couldn't You Play It Straighter." Right. The episode fades in with the, a bit of Paul's isolated bass. He does some hand claps over it, and I like that. Yeah. This has just been fun, watching him watch himself. You know? <laughs> his joy is palpable. And then he goes on to tell us that the Beatles knew that they were different, that when people told them that you'll never make it from Liverpool... Liverpool, 200 miles to the northwest of London. Nothing much ever came from Liverpool but soccer teams and British comedians. The city droned on wearily in post-war Britain, a nation nostalgic for its triumphant past, threadbare and tired in its present. It only strengthened their resolve. They knew they were different. I thought back to the conversation that they had uh, in Let It Be, when he talks about, you know, we, we're always this way. We we get nervous before everything, and then we go out and do it. And and that's kind of the thing. They they always acted to do what it is that they wanted to do. 
Yeah, and then, you know, they went back and forth with Brian. They knew Brian was doing his best, but they were also like, something's going to happen. In those early days, for sure. Well, with the record companies in particular, and the way it happened was just bizarre. George Martin was uh, stopping the secretary and had to pay for it. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the the captain from the Air Force. (laughs) The dashing guy. But he made an honest woman ever, so... Indeed. <laughs> okay, so then we move on to uh, Lovely Rita. You know, they chose a lot of pepper for this uh, six-part series. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how they decided. Maybe they just think it's it was more creative at that point or something. I don't know. You know, I, you know I, I don't know what the reasoning was. They certainly centered much more on... 65, 66, 67, than even they did on the White Album and Abbey Road. You know, you want to get a little bit of each. Yeah. You you almost get as much of the early period as you do the later period. Well, this is true. I don't know whether it has to do with those early songs showed how they moved it along. You started as a guitar player, though. Yeah. Me and John were the guitar players. I used to think I could be lead guitar yeah but i agree there's a lot of pepper in this one of the things that i thought was really cool was um rick rubin when they were playing uh, lovely rita rick rubin is so enthusiastic his eyes go up when they he kind of solos paul's part and he's like digging it or as he always says cooking it's cooking <laughs> and paul reacts to that i don't know it was a little embarrassed oh my gosh this guy really likes what i did you know that was it was nice and then he goes on and, and does the mouth kazoo live. I like that. <laughs> right. Made it look a little like a military man. Right. Well, I was just thinking, you know, another thing that he, he says a couple of times, he'll say, well, then I come in and ruin it. It's just so interesting, the choices you're making in the playing. Other than the bass is really straight. Pretty straight, yeah. I come in and ruin it. Good thing you wrote it. Or he said, I'd buddy in and they'd hate me. <laughs> But it's a good idea, boys. He definitely has that feeling that that's the view, that he he is in places where people don't want him. Well, you know, I think he has to have taken some of what John and George would say to him to heart. I mean, you know, I don't think George necessarily meant it all the time. You know, particularly you think of something, you know, George says, that's too busy. It's like... Well, but that's also one of the greatest bass lines ever played. Right. That has to have struck him a little bit, I think. Yeah, and they were living in the moment. Uh, He said at one point, I was basically working with this bloke named John. You know, now I realize I was working with John Lennon. And so we kind of lose track of the fact sometimes that they were just guys working together. and You didn't always appreciate the genius of your co-band member. 
I guess Pete Townsend once said, you know, when talking about some of these folks from the 60s, is, well, they may, may, may have been your effing idols, but they were my effing friends. Exactly. You know, years ago, Ringo, in a Playboy interview, said, sometimes, I, you know, I get in the car, the girls are screaming, and I think, we're a bloody phenomenon. And then I look over at John, and it's just John, and I have to laugh. You know, they were just friends doing this. They weren't, they didn't consider each other a genius. Well, and I guess some of that comes with, you know, he keeps reminding us that, oh, well, I'm just a fan now, and I can look back. Okay, if you're just a fan, then maybe that's where you're going to pick up this appreciation. Uh, But he doesn't seem to have that appreciation for himself. Right. He will blush if, you know, even if, if Rick Rubin's here calling him a genius. It's like, oh, no, shucks. Yeah. Uh, then we move on. He tells the, the story of, of acquiring the Rosetti 7, what he likes to call a, a good-looking piece of wood. <laughs> right. The action was apparently horrible, and it broke fairly early on in uh, Hamburg. Yeah, fell apart, he said. Which then leads to... Paul talking about their early songwriting and and of course everybody's favorite I lost my little girl <laughs> right yeah Rick Rubin has some interesting observations and they got a little contrapuntal thing going on correct one bit going up and one bit going down yeah you can hear the very genesis of Lennon McCartney when he tells the story of people say well what do you do well I got this little hobby and I, I write songs and they kind of move on. What sports do you like? And, you know, it's just like, okay. John said, well, I do too. And that was it. But then that sort of, uh, he goes on, on later and say, oh, we didn't really seriously write songs until we were playing and, you know, Derry and the seniors would go on before us and do Long Toss Sally or all of our the covers we'd want to play, somebody else would play before us. So we, we had to have songs that were ours and ours alone. It's like, well, but you've been writing since 1955, 1956. Yeah, but they didn't really play them. I've never read that they played their originals very much until they had a recording contract. Yeah, they played a few at the Cavern, I think. But right. again, they're playing everything they possibly knew for these lunchtime crowds. Right. That is around the isolated backing for Oh Darling, which is really nice. Yeah, it really was. Then we get a bit of the session tape for this boy. Yeah, great harmonies. Always like that song. Rick Rubin pulls up John's uh, lead where he's just, you know, belting it out in the middle there. Yeah, I was actually interested in that part because I've always been able to hear the vocal in the record. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, they're going to just show this out there in the open, you know, by itself. But it, it didn't come off that way at all. I'm not sure what, what happened there. This whether that edit was just so perfect without the music. Yeah, you can't tell. Well, you know, it's like all those edits and she loves you. Yeah, well, you know, you know, I've, from from the vocal, it's it's okay. But then when you listen when you listen to the symbols just, you know, half and half, it's like, ooh. Yeah, there's all sorts of edits all over early Beatle material. And Paul tells us that 
oh, well, you know, this is kind of where we thought we were going to end up is playing these kind of cabarets. And this is a very sort of smoochy song that, that we might have done there. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you can see this at a cabaret club. Yeah, for sure. You know, ladies and gentlemen, presenting the Beatles. The lights go down, little spots come up. Back again. <laughs> okay, then, then we go into uh, to something. They played a little bit of something in one of the at the top of one of the previous episodes. Right. This is more concentrated on his baseline. Yeah. Again, Rick Rubin, he's complimenting Paul. You know, you're working so hard, you're doing so much, and it's all in service of to the record. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, it is one of those outstanding bass lines. So it's easy to, to go, wow, let's, you know, totally look at this. You know, McCartney was on fire at that point. Uh, 68, 69. Yeah. Because he had the time and he had the tracks to be able to work out the bass lines, but it didn't make George happy. Right. Although, you know, in the end, I'm sure George didn't put out anything he didn't want. And, you know, it might have just been a line or two that he didn't like. And, you know, because it's it's not like it's a stationary baseline by any means. It's very melodic. You know, this was, would have been after Let It Be and, you know, after the arguments where George was already kind of, it's like, well, you know, I, I'm going to get Paul back for not letting me uh, play the lines I want to play. Could be. While they seem to get along during Abbey Road, I'm sure they had their uh, disagreements as well. Yeah. Right in the middle of all that was when the whole thing with whether or not to sign the contract with Alan Klein came up in the studio. And uh, big argument there. So it has taken on the, the mantle of being a good album to make and, and pretty easy. There still is a bunch of stuff. Yoko in the bed in the studio, that must have made George uh, unhappy. <laughs> you know, it's just people doing their thing. I, I've seen pictures of, of Yoko and Linda laying in the bed. So, when, when the bed was there, Linda did not hesitate to catch 40 winks <laughs> when things were going on that didn't interest her. Well, she, and she was pregnant. Oh, well, that's true as well. (laughs) There were just things going on in the background, but certainly McCarty was pretty much on fire. And they actually sort of tell us that. Do you remember after finishing the song thinking, it's a good one? Did you feel that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think you know that. Yeah. We're good songs. Yeah. Paul sort of modestly says, no, we, we just came up with it. It was all fairly instant. This actually is a point where McCarty said would it be whoever wrote the song would sort of have the vision would, for the yeah. project for that yeah. and then i'd butt in <laughs> and they'd hate me for it <laughs> i go but it's a good idea boys if yeah. you had a good idea it's like mm-hmm. gotta get him in yeah gotta get him in clearly the the discussion of his baseline is still in his memory you know how instant do you think it was you know we know for a fact that he thought about the Lucy bass line for a good long time. You know, that's why they left the bass till the end of the recording. Maybe he came up with the, the idea of the line when, you know, George played it to him. It's like, 
oh, well, I can do this, and that's that's cool. And as you say, he's on fire. Uh, what he comes up with is great. But the final line, I don't think he just sort of just came up with it on the spot. Yeah, certainly he has ideas, themes, maybe he wants to do. I don't think he had a part necessarily worked out from beginning to end. This is what I'm going to do. Then we move on to another George song, uh, Taxman, particularly centering on the solo. Right. And once again, he mentioned something which he had mentioned with Ringo earlier. If you had a good idea for something, you'd say it. Yeah. But often the other guy would sort of say, well, you play it. Yeah. You know, there was, there was a lot of freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did that a lot. Like, I think I'd talked to George a lot about the solo on Taxman. And I think that's what happened. He said, well, you play. <laughs> Easily seen, you know, that going on, working out music. It's just McCartney clearly had this idea, as he said. I mean, he describes it. The song is going along, and you, it just needs this crazy guitar lead. And Harrison neither didn't hear it or, you know, whatever. You play it. Unlike something I think George was pretty happy with the final lead guitar there, although he probably wished he'd played it. <laughs> right. But again, that wasn't George's thing, the sort of wild, almost proto-Hendrix guitar style. Right. And, you know, that's why George would move to the slide. It's, it's something he could do, which was his own thing, which was really cool. This is the point where you need to listen to the end on Abbey Road, with all three of them playing phrases, one after the other, three times. And you can see their different styles. You know, here's Paul's, there's George's, there's John's, you know. John is that very sort of angry, distorted. Yeah. George is really playing notes. And then Paul is... Paul's stuff kind of screams. It's kind of the same Hendrix-esque lead guitar. Yeah. One thing I point out at this point was that in an earlier episode paul refers to the fact that the guitar on another girl it doesn't sound all that great must be me kind of thing and you think and then a year later you're playing that well again it may be style paul is perhaps less good at doing what george does playing the notes in sort of rapid succession but he can do the the bending and the the wild uh hey joe kind of guitar right historically speaking that guitar lead predates hendrix uh absolutely i mean so, you know it is something that was in the air for sure yeah the state of the art was moving forward and Hendrix certainly took it a step further than than paul did on taxman well you know earlier again he referred to the one of the things that really impacted him was the sound of the Kinks and that Dave Davies distorted, crunchy guitar. And that's kind of the way Paul plays guitar on some of this stuff. Then we move um, more into Paul's bass playing. Uh, you know, he starts off with the giving credit to James Jamerson. Right. <laughs> but by then. And yeah, despite the fact that the isolation we get is from what's going on, which was from 1971. Right, but he'd been playing all, all these records. He was the Motown bass player. Yeah. All of those records, that's his bass playing. Yeah, that's just maybe the only uh, cut they could get where they could do an isolated bass. It was maybe. Inter interesting to listen to. The point is that Jamerson was definitely coming up with these sort of melodic lead guitar style bass lines. Right, and it had a knack of, 
you know, putting a bass note where it would move the song. I would say that McCartney was probably listening to him and, and Brian Wilson and putting that all together. Brian's bass playing became better, although by the time that it got really sort of noticeable, it wasn't Brian anymore. But it was Brian, his choice of what to do with the bass. Oh, absolutely. His, you, know, uh, you know, again, we're, we're looking at Pat Sounds here in particular. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, that, that was the wrecking crew by then that was actually playing the instruments. So like, that, that allows Paul to tell he, one of his absolute favorite stories of the bass player was the fat guy in the back. Yeah. Oh, my God. So sad. I just realized that's what I was. <laughs> um, yeah. What can you say? Mike McCartney used to make fun of Paul because he, he considered Paul kind of chubby. So that might have been kind of a, a thing with him. You know the the chubby thing, and so he. Oh my God! I'm going to be the chubby guy playing the bass. <laughs> oh, okay. But he loves to tell that story. The bass player in, in the groups in Liverpool, it was the fat guy, <laughs> and he would just stand at the back. And the guitar player, they had all the fancy stuff. I think of Chaz Chandler, you know, he was kind of the big guy in the animals. And then you, you combine that with his guitar boogie story. It's like, ooh, thanks, Paul. <laughs> then we move on to Come Together. Yes. We get Paul with the guitar demonstrating, probably demonstrating a little bit uh, more overt than it actually was, uh, how John had brought in You Can't Catch Me. I know that it was faster and Maybe it was that fast, he used to say. I mean, we weren't there, so. Yeah, I mean, it might have been exactly that. Lennon kind of doing Chuck Berry, and he didn't take anything but the first line and the that field, so. Well, but I mean, the, the other song that we know that it developed from is already a slower song, the, the campaign song that he wrote for Tim Leary. <laughs> right. And, you know, that has as much of the eventual come together as uh, You Can't Catch Me. yeah. Then we actually get to see Paul. One of the few times we actually see him playing the Hofner in this whole six uh, episodes. <laughs> right. We, yeah, we get a little demo uh, of him. He, you know, he doesn't uh, really play bass much, the whole thing. So. Again, if we are fortunate enough to get a second series, I would like to hear Paul talk about the differences between the uh, the songs on the Hofner and the songs on the Rick. Right. So we, he uh, talks about how by using the bass to slow down the song, you get this wonderful little time signature. Yeah. Which then left an opening for Ringo to come up with a signature drum line. Don't know whether it was like, okay, so let's just do it slow, kind of, you know, and then everybody sort of came together or whether McCartney goes, I have this bass line that's going to kind of change the thing. Whether it was his idea or whether it was the band's idea to slow it down and then they came up with cool parts well i mean all the versions on record are already after it slowed down and we don't have a demo of it so timothy leary comes on tuesday we better come together john and yoko come every day Come now. Do you think there are a bunch of demos at Dick James' music still? There may well be. 
But then I don't know where they would have gotten to. Would they have, uh, would they have gone to UME or would Dick James have uh, squirreled them away somewhere so they're in a vault? Right, right. This is going to make be my great grandchildren's college education. After they talk a bit about how great Paul's bass is and come together. Right, the signature of the song. We move back to uh, 1970. We move to uh, McCartney where he describes himself. I thought I'd be in this band forever. Mm. But various things were happening. There was a lot of heavy business stuff mm-hmm. that, had, that had influenced decisions. Mm-hmm. So we, we split up. And uh, I was heartbroken, really. I think of the four, he's the one, maybe him and Ringo, who really did think that that was something that could go on. Yeah. John was all, was looking to get out by, really by 66, he was even thinking about it, both John and George. John and George had different views. Oh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't necessarily, let's break up the Beatles, but, you know, George and his, that's it, I'm not a Beatle anymore. And, you know, John readily admits that the whole reason he did How I Won the War was, it's like, well, what am I going to do next? Right. John couldn't see himself playing Beatles songs at 30. (laughs) He ended up doing it. We get some of the video from, you know, the McCartney era in Scotland, Paul and Linda and the kids and the dogs having fun. Being a hippie farmer. Which is great. One of the things to think about is for six months in 1970, two of the Beatles were living without running water and electricity. George in Friar Park and Paul out in Scotland. <laughs> well, I thought of that. <laughs> two of the richest guys, two of the most well-known guys in the world. And we're going to live in the, in the central room here. We're going to build fires in the fireplace. And it's like, oh, well, okay. Yeah. Just a little bit ironic. <laughs> So that moves us into junk. Uh, the we get a little bit of the junk session. Yeah, not not much new here. Yeah, it's interesting to me though about McCartney, and, and I'll probably get blasted for this, but you know he tells the story of this album that he made at home, and it's not really. Well, it's half an album he made at home. Yeah, well, even that there were the tapes he brought up in the studio and transferred them and messed with them, so. I think this whole thing where Paul just recorded everything at home was part of the sales pitch and it has kind of stuck to it because it's not really, maybe I'm amazed it's not from his house. Oh, that's, that was recorded at EMI. Yes. And, 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 barrel. and every night and man, we was lonely. Basically the, the songs we remember that aren't, you know, mama miss America and Queen of core. Right. I think the only one really, from all those recordings, I really like is "Ooh You." <laughs> well, you glasses know. is kind of kind of fun. Yeah, well, yes, but but it's clearly an experimental kind of thing. That you know, that's cool. I just I just think it's kind of funny that that myth is still perpetuated, and, and, including by him. Well, and because he likes it, and <laughs> you know, you got to remember he was in McCartney three mode at that time. Yeah, this is true. We we got to push the story. <laughs> yeah. Now I believe he did everything on McCarty three because he had studio. Well, almost yeah. everything. I mean, sliding we know features Abe on the drums. <sighs> the one, the one track that that he didn't play everything on. You boundary cheat. <laughs> Speaking of Paul doing doing a little bit of rock, we we get some of uh, maybe I'm amazed. 
Yes. Um, one of the things that struck me was that there's a track that they raised up at one point. I wonder if that's tucked in there. I never heard that. Before. No. No, you left it out. I don't know. It yeah, might be just. Might be. Sounds like I mixed it out. It's wrong. <laughs> Everything about it's wrong, and so even McCartney kind of looks like what. And then they kind of discuss it like it was perhaps an idea that just didn't get in. And I'm thinking, that doesn't sound like McCartney at all. I mean, that wouldn't have been a, something like, hey, let's try this. <laughs> Who knows where it actually came from again. It may have been that he was stoned one night. Let's record something. <laughs> that could be. One thing I noticed was the sound on the cymbals uh, with the, on the track with the live piano. That is a really cool sound going on there. Baby, I'm amazed at the way you pulled me out of time. You hung me on the line. I didn't listen. It's just so clear and crisp. Ah, uh, well, there's some things in there he clearly mixed out. There's a couple of guitar lines that, that was were played, clearly recorded, but mixed out. And, and then he tells the story that he'd heard that John's new record would just be called Lennon. I don't know what he's thinking of. You know, plastic, pl- work on Plastic Ono Band hadn't started yet. Right. You know, maybe it was Bly Peace in Toronto? You know, I don't think Yoko would have stood for that. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's someone as a joke told Paul. That John was doing an album and he was calling it Lennon. Calling it Lennon. And it turned out not to be so. Wow. So I thought, that's a great idea, though. Yeah. You just called it your surname. Yes. So I thought, I'll have that. So I just made my first record McCartney. I don't think it's just something he made up. It, it sounds but like a real memory. I think it was a great title. You know, everybody knew Lennon McCartney. And that title announced <laughs> that it's now just McCartney. Well, so. especially in conjunction with his press release. Yeah. No more Beatles, at least for now. So it's like... <laughs> I wonder when he actually decided that the interview was pretty much constructed by him and whoever in the office. Peter Brown is usually given credit for coming up with at least some of the questions. Well, they had to have decided to to do the interview and to call it McCartney. I mean, it was coming. He was planning a launch. As it ends, they talk a little bit about, uh, you know, Wings and Wings as a touring band and that when he really got over the end of the Beatles was when he started playing Beatles tracks with Wings. So I guess he has to be really talking about 79. The Wings Over America tour, he really only ever played the four songs. Right. But by 79, got to get you into my life and entered the set. And while it wasn't like the 89 tour, there was still a... Significant chunk of Beatles songs in there. Yeah. Played in the same style. I mean, that's the other thing about Wings Over America. I've Just Seen a Face and Lady Madonna are played in just a completely different arrangement. Well, I think that it had to have been kind of coming around. He he did the 76 tour and there was a, a movie rock show thing put together. And then his albums were selling great. I mean, there's no reason for him to really be in that state of mind for that long. Yeah, I mean, of course, in, in 76, he was still quite defensive when asked about, are the Beatles getting back together? Yeah, well, that, <laughs> that question appeared to arise all the time for all of them. 
So they were pretty tired of it. Well, he, he has the little Muhammad Ali thing. The Beatles broke up in 69, and since then, everything's been fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. The final episode, titled imaginatively enough, he says sarcastically, The Long <laughs> and Winding Road. <laughs> yeah. So it starts with Paul on Sullivan doing Yesterday from 1965. Right. I'm a little bit surprised he didn't tell his favorite story about that night. You know, uh, uh, oh, I was standing behind the curtain and the, and the guy said, uh, are you nervous? <laughs> and he said, no. And the, then the, the guy with the curtain said, well, you should be. There's 70 million people. Yep. Then we get at least an abbreviated version of the yesterday story. Yes. At 78 years old, uh, 79, it's, it's got to be amazing to him that he just has the ability to write melodies that seem to connect with so many people. It just woke up and it was there. So, you know, people later would say to me, you know, do you believe in magic? I said, well, I have to. You know, I mean... How did that happen? Yeah. Uh, and he uh, he's told this story elsewhere, and he wasn't quite as open about where he was living at the time. Here he actually does say, oh, well, I was living upstairs in Jane Asher's uh, parents' house. I was in a little top floor flat at my girlfriend's house. So I, I woke up with this tune. I thought, I love this tune. Oh, this must be from my dad's era. Hmm. Oh, this is like some old tune. So I just started. So I had that, but I couldn't carry the piano with me. And I will mention something I mentioned before. There was a series of half-hour docudramas that were made for uh, UK TV, and one of which was Scrambled Eggs, which was uh, a... uh, slightly fictionalized version of the retelling of the yesterday story. It's not bad. It's not good, but it's not bad. <laughs> it showed up on Showtime here in the States. Really? Yep. So, you know, it comes up with my Paul McCartney search list. I see. But I like it because we actually get fictionalized versions of uh, Jane and the Asher parents and the other sister. I haven't seen that. Someone has uploaded it to YouTube. I'll send you the link. Okay. So we get a little bit more discussion about yesterday. He talks about going in with George Martin and actually uh, George having to convince him to go with the uh, string quartet. And George is a producer. You know, he, he did it the way it should have been done. You know, let's just do it. And if you don't like it, we don't have to put it in. I think Martin knew that it was going to sound pretty good. Everybody goes, yeah, they put strings on yesterday. But that's not really it. It's a string quartet. It's a specific sound that was strings but not the way you normally heard them on most records this tight unit had a different sound than small c strings somewhere i uh, have read that paul's one and only statement to the quartet was no damn vibrato right uh, the only reason i have any doubts about that is you know we've got the george martin where he'd actually written out the string parts and that doesn't seem to have been written on the day. It seems like they've been talking about it for a good long while. And here Paul kind of makes it like, oh, well, you know, I talked to George. We came up with the parts. 
we called in the quartet and they played and then I was happy. I was excited to hear what it sounded like. I think there may have been a little bit more time in there than what he's letting for. I did this in the afternoon. I had it in my mind what I had to do and um, it was just straightforward. Yeah, well, you know, it was recorded. The string parts were recorded later and, you know, who knows how long he and Martin worked on the score, you know, Mark tells a story about at the end of the song, there's a, a note that is held and it's held even during the changes of chords, which wouldn't normally be done. And that's what Paul wanted. And it really increases the tension of that moment. But they talked about doing that. So that was, you know, they clearly worked on the score and then Martin did it. Yeah, you know, I don't think we're talking about a big, huge amount of time, but I also don't think it was just like, bing, bing, bang, boom, we're done. <laughs> right. Uh, and along those lines, uh, you know, Paul talks about George Martin as an arranger, and I thought that was a particularly uh, prescient quote. Uh, you know, normally you, you've got a song and you have to get an outside arranger in. Yeah. And then he sort of goes off into a cupboard somewhere, and you don't quite know what it's going to be. But with George, you knew that we read each other well enough. Right. You know, it has nothing to do with the review of this, but one of the things that I thought really demonstrated why George Martin was so great is because, you know, the one song that, McCartney had an outside producer was She's Leaving Home. And I think it was Mike Leander yep. was the arranger. And so Martin, you know, he rec- had it recorded, but the original arrangement had this little string part between the verses. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And Martin's like, we're going to cut those out. And it absolutely works that way. His choices were always in the service of the song. Yeah, then Paul says something which is really pretty funny. Because coming from Liverpool, there's a lot of sort of Irish, Celtic influence. And the Celts never wrote anything down. It's the bardic tradition. Yeah. So that's our excuse. Yeah. Me and Johnny just say, yeah, it's the bardic tradition. (laughs) Bardic tradition, that's brilliant. Has probably nothing to do with reality, but yeah, I get it. That's good. It's a good line. (laughs) It's something to say anyway, and it's probably something that Ian John just threw back and forth. Right. So, okay, we get a little bit of Kansas City from Shindig, although it sounds to me like the they've uh, dubbed some of the studio version on top of it. Uh, Yes, I I think the the backing track is is a backing track, but I think the uh, Vocals were live. And as, as Paul says, I thought it was Ray Charles in my head, which is interesting <laughs> considering that, uh, you know, well, Long and Winding Road, you know, he, he said that he started that out as, well, I want to write a song that's like a Ray Charles song. <laughs> right. Well, it, Lennon always wanted to write, uh, what did I say? <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, I mean, the, he would he would borrow various things, but well, and also some other guy. I mean, some other guy is to a certain extent just a rewrite of what did I say? You, you transpose yeah. some instruments, but yeah, 
then he talks about uh, James Ray's uh, If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody in 3-4, in Walt's time, which, of course, they would use in Babies, Babies in Black. Babies in Black, right. I mean, mine. Yeah, that's a new beat, as he says. I haven't heard that beat. George got that record in the States. The, before the Beatles trip to America, when he went to go visit his sister, was when right. he got the James Ray album. Right, that was, what, September 63, I 63, think. and that same album had got my mindset on you on it. Right. Then we move on to uh, And Your Bird Can Sing. They start all the way at the beginning. You've got one of John's uh, patented intros, you know. Quite, quite brisk, uh, moderato, foxtrot. Is it? Oh, of course, I couldn't see. One, two, three, four. And the two of them are just so happy to listen to this. The two of them are cooking. <laughs> like, yeah. cooking. And it is. It's, it's hot. They isolate some tracks that make it real fun. The interplay between Paul's bass and Ringo's drums. And, and then uh, they mix the drums out. And, totally. and then they point out, even then, it's still, as Rick Rubin says, full on yeah. cooking. Yeah. You, you can hear the excitement, even without the drums. And that that's incredible, really, because the, the whole song, the track locks together. This is an instance where, uh, at least in part, the rhythm's in the guitars. <laughs> right. It sounds thrilling. Like, And I think what it is is you guys were excited mm. making it, mm. and we get to feel your excitement. Yeah. You can, it's a human feeling that's... Yeah. In that performance, yeah. clearly, yeah. these guys are going for it. Really, yeah. And you feel and it. Because it all had to be done so quickly. Yeah, it's contagious. Yeah. You know, like the, the energy is contagious. It's almost Murray the K type <laughs> excitement. <laughs> the energy <Right>. is contagious. <laughs> Definitely AM screaming radio jock. Bill Murray the K. Yeah. Then they throw back to their previous conversation. To me, it has a Celtic flavor. I don't hear it, to be honest with you. The Celtic? Yeah. That's why I'm wondering whether he's just not making a joke based on Paul's bardic tradition. <laughs> Maybe. Paul's response is, They say Liverpool's the capital of Ireland. Of course, in the case of the Beatles, that's very much a true statement, since they are all of Irish descent. Yeah, McCarty ends up saying it. It's amazing. Good group. <laughs> 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 Then Rick Rubin asks about uh, when they would sing in unison rather than in harmony. That occurred a lot on the early records, early double tracking. But their voices, just as they'd learned how to play guitars together, and therefore they all knew the same chords, uh, I think John and Paul just developed this thing where they sang the same. The vowel sounds were the same. They could cut off a word at the exact same time, and one of them wouldn't hang over. So they were really good at that. But I do like Paul's... It might just have been that both of us wanted to do the vocal. Yeah. So there's only one answer to that. Yeah. Both do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. But he also said which was probably the truth, which is that's how they wrote it. They would sit up with the guitars, and they would write the song, and they'd both sing it. So that was the way the song went. Then we get to hear there and everywhere. Right. He talks about having written it when waiting for John to wake up, which apparently 
was a common experience. Yeah, Paul would get up early and drive over, and apparently he would frequently meet Cynthia, and it's like, nope, he's still in bed. Okay, so Paul yeah. would sit out by the pool or whatever and right. take out his guitar and start writing. Yeah, and he says, you know, John would come back, oh, yeah, well, let's finish it. It's great, you know. It is astounding to me that I, that I think, all in all, I think John and I wrote just short of 300 songs, and every session... We finished the song. You think that's actually the case? Well, it's probably true, possibly true. You know, you, would you remember the stuff you dumped? Well, that's true as well. Um, it happened enough, so that at least that's what he remembers. So uh, I guess that could be. But, you know, Lennon, in a lot of ways, was such a procrastinator. I don't know. Well, I mean, that would then, of course, be one of the big disagreements between them is that, you know, Paul said, here's my half dozen songs. Come on, let's start going and record. Right. It's like, oh, well, I haven't written anything, <laughs> which would then only be made worse by John's uh, lethargy and uh, <laughs> drug use in the late 60s. Right. And, you know, by, by the end of the 60s, Lennon was famous for saying that uh, the office was always telling them, we need 500 songs by Friday. So, yeah, he didn't have quite the same work ethic, but, you know, um, you just never know. You know, you, you, you really have to kind of break it down to what songs are really Lennon McCartney songs, because even though they all are, there are a bunch that are not, you know. Really, by the time that they stopped touring, for the most part, uh, a much smaller percentage were collaborations. Right. You know. Or, or it might be as much as i've got the whole song the tune worked out and i've got a couple of verses but that's all i got or i need a middle eight yeah so i would say for the most part everything from rubber soul onward is primarily a lennon or a mccartney song not that they wouldn't write together but they just had much less time or inclination to do so i like this one i like it there and in fact, John liked this one. Mm. And John was not one to praise. Because, yeah. you know, we talked about him being a little bit shielded. Yeah. You know, he, he just wouldn't praise anything unless he really liked it. And I wonder what John contributed that would be interesting to find out. You know, it's one of those songs that, that is so clearly Paul McCartney, you wonder what his contribution was. Because clearly there was one. Yeah, I'd have to go check what John said in the Playboy interview. He might have said something about it there. But I, they both agree that it's at least, you know, 90% of McCartney's song. Yeah. And then Paul tells the story, which we still have no idea what he's actually talking about. After we'd made this record, we were going to film in Austria with the, for the film Help. Yes. And me and John shared a uh, ski chalet. So we were, we were taking our boots off and stuff. We were playing the album. I remember him saying, oh, I like this one. And you know what? That was like enough. Yeah. That was like great okay. praise yeah. coming from John. The timing is way off. There's been a lot of speculation. I heard uh, one person say that since Here, There, and Everywhere is a ballad, that maybe the previous album would have been something from Rubber Soul. But Rubber Soul wasn't recorded when they were filming Help. Maybe the Help album, then that would have to be you know something like Yesterday or I've Just Seen a Face. That that would be funny if John Lennon 
said, I really like this when it was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so then we, we move on to the, the very last song on the very last episode. That's A Day in the Life. How perfect. And so we were wrong in the previous show. The, the bit with John Cage was actually here, not in Tomorrow Never Knows. Yes. And that was cool thing to, to see. I'd never seen that. But I like what Paul says there is that he was interested in it. He didn't want to do that, but he loved the <laughs> idea that it had been done. Right. He keeps talking about freedom. And, uh, you know, he had the freedom to just play around with, the, with sound. Well, and the freedom to rent an entire orchestra for the evening to play on A Day in the Life. Right. Now, he's told that story before, but one question I had, the way he puts it... So then, the original thing that I'd put down was, from a certain point, all the musicians were allowed to break free. Now, these are session musicians. They're not used to doing this kind of stuff. And it kind of frightens them a bit. Mm. So I sort of said, okay, here's the instruction. Is that each instrument, you start on your lowest note and you're going to reach your highest note, but you go at your own speed. So if you want, you can go and you're done. Or you can go do, 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 and you just play with it. If a horn player started on the lowest instrument, four bars in, got to the highest note, were they supposed to keep playing the highest note all the way through? No, the version I read was that the instruction included, you need to be at this particular point by this measure. Okay, but he didn't say that here. No. That sounds more proper. It's like, after a measure, you're here. After a measure, you're here. How you get from your lowest note to this note, the quarter of the way up is up to you so it's not quite completely get to the highest node in whatever way you want whatever to. way you can yeah and if i remember the story correctly that was a george martin edition because i'm sure all these people were like what <laughs> that's gonna sound ridiculous well i mean the gist of the idea of course was that the strings wouldn't really move without each other they all went to the first guy. Whereas the brass, the trumpets, you'll notice they're a bit more free. They're a bit more the lads. Yeah, they know. tend to have that uh, personality <laughs> yeah, in, in real life. Their personality showed. <laughs> Let's listen to it the. It was very exciting doing that piece of Beautiful. orchestra, though, yeah. Uh, and that they got the sound that they wanted at the end of it. Yeah, so the introduction of the song it's john playing the guitar i was hoping they'd they'd just play that for a little bit so we could hear john play that song by himself the clean guitar intro i mean we've we've had versions of it but the one here is very very nice yeah yeah very much and then we we get into the bass yes (laughs) and rick rubin once again Right. Well, you know, he points out that, you know, the song it would be John playing his guitar, you know, that kind of a dreamy feel. But Paul and Ringo come in and there's a different energy. And it does. That's also one of the great bass lines. I believe it was uh, it was Darren who had mentioned that uh, 
Ringo's playing at least stylistically resembles something off of Pet Sounds. There's there's one song off of Pet Sounds which uh, the the tones sound a lot like how Ringo's playing here. Is it likely that Paul was the one who suggested that he play like that? Yeah, I don't know. They still were sharing albums with each other a lot, and that certainly was a big album. But that also may have been while they were working on the rhythm section. It's like, oh, well, you know, why don't you play a little bit like that? Because I can then do this on the bass. The initial recording, you know, his drum part really isn't much. He's just basically keeping the beat. It's when he does the overdubs on the toms, and that's what sends it to a whole different place. So initially, it's really not that spectacular. I don't know when Paul's final bass track went down. I have to look. Now, Rick Rubin then asks whether this is the first time that they put two songs together. They had to have put two songs together before. Right. Well, I always thought that's what uh, We Can Work It Out was. Yeah, if nothing else, well, Michelle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What John Cribb from Nina Simone may not have been a full song, but... <laughs> right. How are you going to say, Did how did you put two songs together? It's one section and it's another section, that, and they weren't necessarily written to be of the same piece. But, you know, McCartney always always kind of answers, well, maybe. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that could be. You know? yeah, uh, yeah, he doesn't want to contradict. Yeah, you know, he, he's probably used to some book coming out going, oh, <laughs> I remembered that all wrong. <laughs> I did want to say that there was one difference in this. And when they're talking about, you know, having a smoke on the bus and he says, well, I wouldn't have done that on the way to school kind of thing. <laughs> and yet in, in Hunter Davies book, he's like, yeah, we would go upstairs and catch a quick smoke. They were supposed to, they're too young, but they were catching quick smoke. So it's weird that on this one, years and years later, he's like, well, I wouldn't have been doing that. Well, and just fairly recently, when we was talking about early days, he quite blatantly mentions, oh, well, you know, I would collect these cigarette packs that the guys left on the bus, not only to get the packs, but <laughs> just to see if there were cigarettes left in there. <laughs> right. So I don't know why he felt the need to, to do that. Oh, well, you know, he can do what he wants to do. Yeah. And then it ends on the final chord. Yes. Playing out the final chord, you can hear our harmonics and things, and that's kind of neat, which allows Paul to end the whole three hours with... But it goes on forever. A really long time. And it's, if you listen, it almost sounds like it changes. Yeah. You start to hear little harmonics yeah. and things, yeah. You know, there's the magic again. It's uh, interesting he doesn't mention the whole faders thing. He's just like, the piano just goes on and on forever without talking about how the engineers push the faders up so it would last and last, you know, to the very end. That almost seems like an edit somewhere in there to me, frankly. It could be. I've also uh, was surprised in all this how many times he mentions party pieces. I'd realized, I'd noticed yes. that with a piano, how long, if you hold down a loud pedal on a piano, how long the chord lasts. And I just do it like a party piece with friends. Yeah. I say, listen to this. And that's really charming to me that, you know, he goes to these parties and everybody does their little shtick. And this would be one thing or Michelle would be another one. Certain families still do that sort of thing. I mean, apparently that's one of the bits that Paul and Tom Hanks bonded over because the Hanks family apparently very, very much does the same sort of family gatherings. You get together and everybody 
has to perform. Everybody performs with the aunts and uncles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a representation of family to Paul, I believe. Yeah. He he was blessed with a really cool family. People who cared about him enough that when he lost his mother, they still cared for him. But, I mean, John's aunties also cared for John. Not just Mimi, but the whole Stanley clan cared for John. I mean, you know, he didn't have his mother, but... And that hurt him a whole lot, but he did still have this family unit to a certain extent. Yeah, I think the tone was different, though. Julia was still the black sheep of the family, but the aunties were still coming and taking care of him as necessary. Right. And the last four or five minutes of of the show is dedicated to a, a play out of the end over the closing credits. That's always fun. That's a great piece of music. Some of the credits I found kind of uh, interesting and unique. There is a credit for Set Medics. <laughs> and his name is Dr. Robert. <laughs> <laughs> There's mention of uh, CG artists. I guess that's for the colorization. Because I can't think of too many other computer graphics throughout the whole thing. Maybe Beck was in the hallway. <laughs> the sound was done at Skywalker Sound at, at the ranch. Right. So I guess George Lucas is going to uh, provide us with a an updated version <laughs> of this uh, sometime in the distant future. R- right. Well, you know, he could dub in John. <laughs> and then uh, now, there, there's one thing I, I wanted to say uh, and that just reminded me of it and that was um, Rick Rubin read praise for McCartney about his you know yeah some, something out of the Playboy interview I want to read to you one thing Paul is one of the most innovative bass players that ever played bass and the stuff that's going on now is ripped off from his Beatle period he's a great great musician did I write that? That is John Lennon. That's John. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. That's beautiful. So, you know, Paul got that praise. And he's you know, he's always said that he, the one time John said anything, it was just nice that he, he got that. I also yeah. don't necessarily believe that Paul hadn't ever heard that before. You know, that's something that would have come up when they were pulling clips from John for the anthology. So that was acting. I won't go that far, but I will say that... You know, I don't necessarily believe that Paul was completely unfamiliar with that quote. Ah, maybe there were word changes that made it unfamiliar to him. <laughs> Could be. Well, I mean, you know, did I write that? Yes, Paul, you wrote that about yourself. <laughs> and then at the very end of the credits, there are folks from MPL, there are folks from The Mill, and there are folks from Maverick. I guess Maverick is uh, Rick Rubin's studio. This pot, yeah, probably. So I guess MPL and the mill, just because they probably provided certainly the instruments and some of the things that uh, went in in the studio. Do we know where this was filmed? What I've heard was that they'd built the studio, quote, near Paul's pandemic hideout. The very last special thanks that I wanted to mention, uh, Mark Lewison gets a special thanks, which is kind of interesting. Uh, of course, Lewison has a long history with Paul. Uh, Lewison was the editor of Club Sandwich for a good long while. Right, and has written the books on recording sessions and tune-in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just brilliant. But for various reasons, uh, Mark is no longer welcome on Apple projects. 
So, you know, I don't know if Paul is just sort of thumbing his nose at the other, well, Olivia and Yoko. Thumbing his nose at the wives. But there are issues which Mark himself has told about, uh, if you go and listen to some of uh, the podcasts that Mark has appeared on, uh, he's had issues with the Harrison estate, and so they, they just do not want him on any of the Apple projects anymore. And, and McCartney had been following suit, but, well, here he is. Right. I was going to say, in Beetle World, it could always happen where suddenly he has had all the access all along, and it'll be like, wow, how did that happen? The one thing that maybe is that he may have been responsible for some of those photographs because there's certainly rare photographs in throughout the special. You know, Paul may have gone to to Mark and said, "Yeah, uh, you know, you you know where 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 what is in the club sandwich archives? Pull me some good photos that that we can colorize and put in this special." Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, we made it through six episodes. Uh, Our review is probably just about the length of of the show yeah but yeah how silly is that but it's you know we've had a lot of fun here I think. oh yeah for sure yeah i mean that's the joy for me in doing this in the first place is it's like you know just talking about what you know and it, it's a great story and as mentioned at the top we do we do indeed have our review copies of all things must pass so we are going to start in with Something, we haven't decided which disc we're going to start in, but we'll start in somewhere on the All Things Must Pass box next week. Look forward to it. I guess we'll see you then. Talk to you all next week. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab, and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. to the vocal and the guitar mm. it's a very laid-back mm. dreamy energy yeah. and then the bass comes in and it's and the drums and the drums yeah. but it's driving in an entirely different direction than the song might suggest yeah you know it's great that I felt that freedom no absolutely I mean, like absolutely. So, you know, the band was a very free band yeah. and we would allow each other pretty much anything yeah Unless it was like really stunk and it was like, oh no, forget it. And then we'd all gang up on whoever that was and stop it. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.